Good afternoon, everybody. So I recently checked out my reviews on Apple. Uh, I've got 21 reviews and all of them were five stars. And I'm, I'm super stoked about that. And I'm more than that, I'm very, very thankful. Uh, I, it, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that the, that the random ramblings and conversations that I've been having is even remotely entertaining, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. So thank you so much. Uh, today is an example where two aviation passions collide on a crash course of fun conversation. My guest today is Jamie Arena. Jamie is a commercial pilot. He's an intelligent, hyper-rational guy, and for good reason. Because to fly in aviation, you've got to be well-informed, analytical, procedural, methodical, but also capable of taking in mass amounts of data and information in real time. It makes for a formidable conversation between two like-passion comrades. We talk about not just aviation, but we talk about how Jamie got into aviation and flying in general. I hope to highlight the difficult and expensive process of becoming a commercial pilot. It truly is an astronomical endeavor. According to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, the most recent data shows us that the average salary is about $120,000. While that salary sounds amazing, and it is, the path to get there is very costly. In order to be a commercial pilot for the airlines, you need to earn a certificate known as an ATP or airline transport pilot certificate. That's a 1,500-hour requirement. Plus, you need to earn those hours at the rate of about $150 an hour. That's $225,000 for a certificate. The FAA recently increased the minimum hours to $1,500 as well, raising the cost and the barrier to entry to be a commercial airline pilot. As a result, big bonuses are attracting military pilots, hurting the military aviation community, and currently there's a mass exodus of military pilots and military pilot experience occurring right under our nose. But the show isn't all doom and gloom. <laughs> we have an intriguing conversation about the automation in, in aviation and human factors. We also talk about the effects of COVID to the aviation community. And that said, I'd like to plug something for Jamie, which you'll hear at, at the end of the podcast as well. Everyone's suffering from COVID, and airlines are no different. Yes, they're large companies, but keeping a company alive isn't about the company. The company has no life. It's inorganic. It cannot love or hate. It can't be happy or sad. The organics are the pilots and employees of those companies. Airlines operate on terribly low margins. They're kind of like restaurants in, in that way. As a result, lawmakers are pushing for a bill to support the aviation and airline industry, the Airline Payroll Protection Act. This is a clean bill without any obscure attachments to it. The president said he would sign it. The Senate has authored and approved the bill. The House is holding it up. Jamie asked that you reach out to your senators, write a letter. Um, I don't know if you can, I mean, you can call their office for sure, but kind of reach out and, you know, if, if, if you're able to support it, please, please do support it. Again, we're, we're willing to bend over backwards and help people in the restaurant service industry. And those same businesses operate on similar margins to, to uh, aviation industries. So just a thought, but anyway, Everyone, I hope you enjoy this podcast, and uh, please welcome Jamie Arena. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Shop and Chivalry podcast. Uh, my guest today is uh, Jamie Arena. He's a uh, commercial pilot. We're uh, from the same area, so it should be an interesting time. Jamie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, man. Tell me about yourself, man. I mean, I know, but uh, listeners may not. You know, where are you from? Well, I'm from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh -huh. uh, I, I uh, 
work as a uh, commercial airline pilot. Uh, I was flying around in the passenger world. And then uh, recently I joined a uh, one of the major cargo airlines and uh, currently in training with them to be flying a uh, pretty large aircraft, uh, Boeing 767, all over the world here shortly. That's awesome. Um, so staying busy with work, uh, one of the lucky ones in the industry. Um, and uh, uh, can't wait to get back up in the air. It's been a few months since I've uh, actually gone flying. So kind of getting antsy being on the ground for this long. <laughs> well, what got you into flying? What? Well, why was that your pathway? <clears throat> well, you know, my, my, my father's an airline pilot. He's uh, uh, worked as one for over 40 years. He's got, uh, got a little over a year to go, a year to go before you're uh, forced to retire. There's a mandatory retirement age. That's uh, 65 years old. So he, he has to retire on uh, uh, basically the 1st of December in uh, uh, 2021. Wow. So, uh, you know, um, I, I, and we've had, my, he's owned airplanes throughout the years. We've been partners on one, you know, it's kind of like a boat. You'll have a few people that, you know, are part owners of the, of, of the aircraft and they're small little airplanes, you know, that fit through, you know, four or five people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I've always been interested in it and, you know, you grow up the son and my father flies for a cargo airline. You, you, you grow up the son of an airline pilot and you, you know, you, uh, you get jaded to things like, uh, um, like holidays. Like, you know, they don't really, the Christmas doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Cause like the old man was always gone. So to me, like Christmas is always on a day other than Christmas. Gotcha. Um, so, Interesting. so, you, you, so like, you know, the lifestyle is difficult. And then, um, um, you know, when I was younger, my, 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 my parents had, had a pretty nasty divorce. So like I equated my dad's job to, the you know to the reason why they were getting divorced and again this was when i was you know 10 11 12 years old so um you know at that point in my life it was kind of hard to differentiate the two because you don't have the full picture and you're not kind of you know mature enough to see what's what's really going on yeah that makes Um, sense you know so uh, career you know career i didn't think it was going to be for me um then i graduated college and worked in an office for a year let me tell you what that'll really change your perspective on things. And when you go to the cubicle <laughs> every day for a year and I right. was like, and I, I remember walking in one day, <clears throat> sitting down, asking the guy next to me, uh, I can't remember his name. It was Scott. I think this was back in 20, uh, 2012. I said, uh, Scott, how long have you been working here? He goes, Oh, 38 years. I was like, you've been working. He's like, Oh, I'm working in the same department. You know, I just became the manager kind of thing same place for 38 years and I looked at, and I told myself I, look, I looked at him and I thought to myself like <clears throat> like there's more to life than this there's got to be there's, there's a whole world out there waiting to be seen so uh, it, it sounds know, like you were the Jim man. Halpert of, of, yeah, uh, of where you yeah, worked yeah yeah kind of so uh, um, you know I, I called my old man up and said alright but I you know um, I think I want to do this and it was also you know, aviation was not a great industry to be in as a pilot from from 2000 until two, about 2014. It was a terrible industry to be in between 9/11, the recession in 08, and then uh, when Congress extended the, uh, extended the retirement age from 60 to 65, <clears throat> it just made uh, jobs very hard to come by, uh, extremely competitive, and it was uh, a very low wage uh, low wage job uh, to get into initially. Um, Hey, can can, so, I inter- can I interrupt you right there? Um, oh yeah. Sure. So so 
you talk about like kind of getting into it and about how it was it was kind of difficult as a you know as a uh, job prospect. Can you talk about the frustrations of our, of like kind of the 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 upward climb in there? Because regional pilots have a very terrible time, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's your character building years, as I call them. Um, and, and you know, and, and in a lot of ways, the mil of the military pilots, it's 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 not the same job, not the same kind of flying, but it's a lot of, a lot of ways they're they're doing the same thing. They're gaining their experience to, to climb up the ranks in the military. And then after, once they get out of the military to, 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 to get to the airline they want to work at. Um, so <clears throat> kind of, I guess to, to give you the, the quick rundown of how it went, I got, um, I worked, started working on my private pilot's license uh, while I was working at that office job. Um, and it took, I started in September of 2013. Um, Soloed, which means uh, you take airplane up by yourself in the plane for the first time. Um, soloed about a month later. So I had about 25, 30 hours when I did that. And then in uh, January of 14, January 26, if I remember correctly, I got my private pilot's license, which is your first uh, rating that you get. That allows you to fly a very small airplane on nice, you know, clear, sunny days, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of wherever you want. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, constraints that are kind of put on that license just because you don't have a lot of experience you can you have you have to have at least 40 hours of flight experience which is not a lot so how many hours um, did you have and how much were you invested into this by the time you got your ppl so when i got my private most people don't do it in 40 hours i had about i had i think right i think i had 59 or 60 hours when i got my private and that that's because it, the cost is so high that you can't do it at like a lot of people don't do it every day of the week. Um, you know, they'll maybe do once or twice a month because the, a lesson is, you know, somewhere between three or $400, you know, total. And, you know, the aircraft is two or $300 an, an hour to, just to rent. So the, uh, by the time it was all said and done, I'd spent $12,000 just to get my private pilot's license. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, so that's got, an investment yeah. where you can't, you, you still at this point, you're twelve thousand dollars in, and you still can't make money off of it, right? No, I can't. I can't. I, in fact, <clears throat> I can't. I cannot even. At that point, I couldn't even fly you around, and not. So, like, let's let's say you owned an airplane and you wanted to go from Ocean Springs to New Orleans. If I want, if you wanted me to fly you there, I would actually have to pay for half the operating right. costs of the flight just so just so it didn't qualify as commercial flying. Right. Um. So it, the cost. So so yeah. So you, you it's a huge investment getting into it. Um, so I got my private pilot's license. Um, my my girlfriend at the time, who is now my fiance, go out that night, had a beer, celebrated. Then the next day, we moved to California, um, <laughs> and uh, we uh, moved to Los Angeles. That and, escalated uh, I, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that got way out of hand, right? <laughs> then we uh, so we moved out to Los Angeles. And, um, uh, how was living out there? It was it's very different, but it was really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's Southern beautiful Cal- out there, man. It's beautiful. Let, let me tell you what, Southern California is beautiful, but it, you, we were there for, uh, my fiance was there with me for about six months before she came home to, to, to go back to school. And, uh, while I was finishing up flight school, mm-hmm. um, and so I was there for, I was there for uh, like 11 and a half months. I was there for right, right, right around a year. And it was the fastest year of my life. 
uh, we, we got there on, you know, late January. Uh, we got the, the day we, it took us like, we spent like five days going out there because we made a trip of it, you know, seeing all the sites along the way during the drive. Um, we got out there just in time to watch the Seahawks destroy Peyton Manning and the Broncos. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and actually it was weird. LA had a, LA had a, like a big blackout. The whole city had a blackout that night. So no one really see the Super Bowl, which is like it, and the whole city's power came back on it. Like, you know, the last play of the game when they were down like 60 points, it was, it was ridiculous. Really? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Just, I don't know why that happened, but that's, that, that happened the night we, we, we got to California. It's really hard to um, imagine that we can have like, like that blackouts are possible, uh, you know, in, in, in this day and age, like you'd think the infrastructure would be set up enough by now to where we wouldn't have blackouts. You know, it's going, it's actually going on this week in California with their, uh, with the high temperatures, they're having rolling blackouts for the first time in 20 years this week because of the power demand on the system. That's insane. Yeah. It's, uh, California's you know, my, got a lot of problems, up. man. They got a lot got a of, ton of problems. Yeah. But, you know, going back to what I was saying, you know, I was there for 11 months, 11 and a half months, and it was the fastest 11 and a half months of my life. Um, you know, you never think you'd, you'd complain or, um, you know, or, or, or be upset about sunny and 70 every day. <laughs> right. But I woke up, I woke up in, <clears throat> I woke up in Thanksgiving day and I, and the place I was living, uh, my, so going back to my parents, so my parents had a nasty divorce. Well, they called me one day and they get this, uh, they, they called me one day and said, Hey, we're remarried. I said, Oh, wow. Didn't, didn't know you guys were even doing, you know, talking, but great, I guess. So while I was in flight school, they were living in California. So I was living with my parents and you know, I, I'm 12, I was 23 at the time. Uh, I was living in their, uh, uh, living room with a, with a fake wall at each door, like a, like a fake wall, like basically at each doorway of the room. So hmm. during the day, I'd take the fake wall out and like fold the couch bed up kind of deal. Yeah. And at night, pull it out and sleep there. And, you know, I wasn't making any money. So, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Right. And, um, and they lived in this really cool part of, uh, the west side of Los Angeles. So I walk out and, uh, the house was up on the side of a mountain, basically overlooking the water. And it was like a, a, a beach bungalow. I mean, one bedroom house. And, and you could see on clear days, you could see the Hollywood sign from their house. It was like that high up on an elevation. Wow. So I walk out, I look at the Hollywood sign. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. And I realized I was depressed. I was like, man, why am I so sad? I'm think I'm sitting here thinking, man, 2014 and just you know, 2014 was a great year. I had a you know a, a, a new girlfriend at the time. Uh, Mississippi State went number one in the polls. Oh my oh, god, yeah. health ro- health froze over because of that. You know that health froze over just about by that happening. Um, you know, you know, I was learning how to fly, getting my ratings. Why am I sad? And then I thought about it, <clears throat> and at the time, California was in in a really bad drought. So I thought, okay, well, it it, it rained one time in a year i one time i can count it um in, in a whole year so that really bothered me and then i realized like man i miss i missed like i missed the heat and the humidity in the summer i, I missed the, the 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 leaves falling off the trees and and the the, the the cooling of the weather in the wind the fall and the winter time i missed seasons i missed mm. the weather i missed i missed <clears throat> excuse me i missed having a change and and I realized, like, you know, this is why, like, people say, like, you know, oh, like, you hear all the time people moving out there chasing their dream and they'll go out there as a 20-year-old kid and they're 40 and they're still doing the same thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, like, the weather and the fact that, like, the the, 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 
the climate never is really never really is changing. It's the same kind of weather, same kind of climate every day, and I think people just lose track of time. Um, well, there's, I, there's there's something to the idea of of cycles and, and and weather cycles. You know, the fall the fall seems to be. I mean, well, you know, why is it called fall? I I don't know exactly, but you know, the leaves fall, the trees go into a dormant state. And, uh, you know, preparing for what is, what is a winter and winter is commonly associated with things that are, things that are dark or bad, you know, so it's a sort of shedding, shedding of, uh, perhaps oneself in preparation for the darkness only to reemerge in the spring where you can rebloom and, uh, enjoy joy in the summer. You know, who knows that there, there, there might be something, you know, to that, that, uh, kind of, kind of speaks to, speaks to us, uh, maybe metaphysically. Yeah, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think I think that I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, what exactly it is, I, I couldn't tell you. But yeah. um, you know, it was uh, I, 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 I decided at that point. I remember even Thanksgiving Day. I was like, I, I can't stay in California for much longer. I, I have to, I have to make a move here. Um, you know, I gave it its best shot. The people, you know, the. People in LA are crazy. There are a lot of nut jobs in LA, but there's also a lot of really cool people because no one is really from California. Like they like very rare that you actually meet somebody <laughs> from Los Angeles. They're all they're all, from, they're all East Coast transplants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. So uh, you know, there's a lot of neat people, a lot of interesting, a lot of really interesting people. Um, you know, and um, you know, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I try to go back and visit when I can. My brother still lives in the heart of Venice, which is a, a really neat neighborhood in, uh, in in Los Angeles, right in the water. It's and a, it's uh, yeah, it's a very vibrant, very very creative uh, community, and a lot of them are. You know, uh, Santa Cruz is kind of like that. Um, yeah, it, you know, if you've ever been to like the uh, the Bywater in New Orleans, uh, it, or like you know, or like around Frenchman Street, uh, mm-hmm. Venice kind of has the same vibe as, as as there. I would say downtown um, Austin too. Yeah, Austin has yeah, has has kind of that same feel over there. So so when your parents lived in West Los Angeles, are you talking like Van Nuys or Burbank or farther west? Uh, it's called Playa del Rey. So, okay. Uh, if, if you uh, if, you're, if anybody who's listening is familiar with Los Angeles, you you know uh, you have Malibu is the, basically the the further the first town outside of Los Angeles County, and then you work your way down to so Pacific Palisades, you have Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah. There uh, you go. You have uh, Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica. Then you have uh, 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 Venice, Marina del Rey, Playa del Rey, which is where I was, and then literally on the other side of a hill. So most of Playa del Rey actually in, in the uh, 50s was uh, eminent domain by the city of Los Angeles to, to, to make LAX a big airport. Oh, so, wow. uh, Yeah, so it's really interesting. So, you know, LAX sits right on the water. That, there used to be all houses there, and, and it was a neighborhood. It was Playa del Rey. So Playa del Rey went from this huge, huge city to a really small little sliver of the west side because L.A. is right there on the water. And then south of LAX, you have uh, um, uh, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, you know, all these great beach towns. And then there's, you know, I mean, there's all these little, uh, you know, municipalities all within Los Angeles County all over the place. I mean, there's there's like, I think, 10 million people in the county now or something like that. It's insane how yeah, many people there are there. Um so, so yeah, so, uh, you know, got all my pilot ratings there. Uh, you know, so I got, um, uh, I got there at about three weeks after I got there, I got a, my multi-engine, uh, license. So I licensed to fly multi-engine aircraft. 
shortly after that, I got a instrument rating, which lets you fly in clouds and bad weather, and uh, basically uh, it gives you a license to hurt yourself even hurt yourself even worse if you uh, aren't aren't using your head. Um, and so, and then at that point, and so oh, can you ahead. can you talk about now at this point? So you you've got your instrument rating, so you're IFR qualified. Uh, how many hours are you in? What's the cost at this point? Well, I'm, let's see. I was probably about 120 hours in, and I, I, I enrolled myself in a very fast-paced school. Um, so I took out a I took out a student loan for um, eighty thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, yeah, to get all these ratings. So total cost at this point eighty nine about ninety two thousand dollars. So uh, I'm I I I I invested in it heavily. Um, so I got a student loan and, uh, just basically the school sets it up for you. It's kind of like, it was just, it, it was just like a, like a financial aid at like a, at like a, you know, a university, they set it up for you. They, you know, you could look at different lenders if you wanted to, but you know, I went with, uh, one of the big, uh, um, big lenders that's uh, named after a lady. I'm not going to give them a plug on your <laughs> podcast because I don't like them. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so about, so you know, almost a hundred thousand dollars invested now. Um, you know, about one hundred twenty-five hours, um, and, and you know, most of the time you, at flying at this school is done in multi-engine aircraft because uh, you need ex- you need a cert- you need about most airlines want to see at least fifty hours of multi-engine experience before they hire a pilot. Gotcha. So this this school basically. Uh, um, uh, geared most of its flying into in multi-engine airplanes, so you had plenty of that experience by the time you got to an airline. So, so uh-huh. you're you're ninety two thousand dollars in. Are you able to make money off of it yet? Not one dollar. Goodness. Okay. More to Not come. One dollar. <clears throat> yep. 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 I just said more to come on that. So. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. 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 So uh, let's see here. So I got my so I got my multi uh, multi-engine rating, instrument rating. And then from there, I, uh, what happened? Yeah, I got my, com- so I, then I got a commercial license, a commercial multi-engine license. So before doing that, so after I got my instrument rating, um, they gave me, the, the school gave me uh, a multi-engine airplane and, an, and, a, and a, another student who was my safety pilot. And we flew all over the country in a little airplane, a little twin engine airplane. And like the school has locations almost in every state. So we would just fly from location to location, swapping airplanes. It was kind of like a little airline in its own way, but wow. just of, of, of all pilots building up their experience. So, um, you know, I was running around the desert like crazy. So we were, we would go out to, you know, I, I was flying out of Long Beach, which is, uh, the, basically the border city between, uh, uh, Los Angeles County and Orange County. Uh, so we'd go from Long Beach out to, uh, uh, Phoenix, we'd go up to Vegas, uh, we'd go up to, uh, Phoenix is beautiful, Sacramento. man. Oh yeah. We have, yeah. It's, I, I love Phoenix. Great, great city. Yeah. Uh, really great, really great city. You know, the state of Arizona is a, is a beautiful place to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, Vegas, you know, and, and Nevada is, you know, Southern Nevada is a lot like, you know, a lot like it looks the same as, uh, as uh, Arizona does. So it was really, uh, um, quite a, uh, quite a treat getting to fly around there and seeing all the stuff but you know that flying out there uh brings a lot of uh, a lot of challenges in a light aircraft you know you have a a lot of high terrain which requires you to fly at a very high altitude um, sure. you know and the, air, sure. the aircraft are not pressurized and 
they don't make a lot of power, so these airplanes uh, you know, aren't performing very well. And uh, it's very a lot dry of air too. Yeah, really dry air. A lot, a lot of turbulence because because uh, all the, the, the geography create uh, you know kind of creates that. But I mean, I got to fly over the Grand Canyon. At, you know, I'd be a thousand feet over the middle of the Grand Canyon. Like who else? Who else, you know? You don't get to do that in, in an Airbus. No, you know, you have to no, be in not a small at all. Plane to do that kind of stuff. Although um, I've I've been in a uh, C seventeen with the uh, with the back open, and we we're flying through uh, valleys. Uh, in the valleys of, of like mountain ranges doing uh, doing airdrops and and what's great about about the c17 and you'd probably appreciate this that is a very uh, very large but very maneuverable plane and it actually has a control stick not a yoke so it's the c17 is uh, an amazing airplane yeah it is a really amazing airplane it's a cool plane it's uh for, for those of you listening uh, it's the c17's uh uh, about the size of a 767, so it's a, it's, a, it's about a 530 thousand pound aircraft. It has four engines on it, and uh, it's a big cargo aircraft that the military, the United States Air Force uses. Oh um, man, I've got like yeah. uh, 2,000 hours on them. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 cool. They're really really cool airplanes. If I if I was in the military, that's what I would have wanted, wanted to fly. Yeah, um, it's it, it's it's a, fantastic, and it's and it's uh, mission array uh, capability is very very diverse. We've done everything. I mean, I've I've done everything from on a single mission. We've moved, you know, bombs, tanks, you know, equipped for um, uh, prisoner movement, uh, aeromedical evacuation, pallets, airdrops. I mean, and and all the equipment for that is on the plane, so it it, it carries all that, so it can shift its uh, mission role on the fly, uh, which is which is obviously pretty incredible. I, I uh, my 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 cousin's a uh, uh, instructor pilot on one. And, okay. Uh, he'll 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 be like, hey, I'm hauling a tank. He'll send me a text message, be like, hey, I'm bringing a tank to the Middle East today. Yeah. I'm like, what you flying a tank in an airplane? Like, my God. Yeah. You know, yeah. That 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 big. It's a huge airplane. So um, I got into. Uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell this, but I, I got into uh, Marine One. We were carrying Marine One on the C-17, and so I got nice. inside of Marine One while it was, uh, uh, while, while we were airborne, so I like to tell people that I've flown in Marine One. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, speaking of Marine One, I had one of my last flights at my uh, passenger airline, my, my, my first officer, which is a, a co-pilot, uh, he was actually uh, one of the pilots from Marine One. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so it was really cool getting to hear, uh, you know, all the, all the neat things that for a neat places he gets to fly in Washington, D.C., where, you know, uh, for Washington, D.C., for in aviation is very, as uh, a highly protected area. Right. Um, there's a, it's a, it's a tricky place to go flying. And, uh, yep, he gets to fly around in his helicopter, landing on the front lawn of the White House or in the National Mall or wherever else he wants to go. And, uh, he has it's pretty, pretty cool pictures, pretty cool pictures and stories to tell. And he, uh, he's been there. He's been doing, you know, it's, uh, Usually it's a four-year tour. He, he he's a he's a Marine Corps officer. He, usually it's a four-year tour. He was saying, um, but he's been there for uh, almost ten years now. So he's you know he's been there for two administrations so far, and just hearing you know all the different stories about like you kind of it can he was he kind of humanized you know the, the previous administration and the current administration in a way that uh, that you know a lot of people can't. Um, can, you know can't even give you any insight to because right. he, he, fought, he 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 deals with them on a almost daily basis basically yeah so when, it was really interesting good. to hear we, we we flew uh in 2008 we were part of the uh i think it was 2000 nope i'm sorry 2012 
we were in Wisconsin and we were carrying Obama's uh, uh, limousines and also the Secret Service. And let me tell you, first of all, those things are massive. You, you can't appreciate how big they are and, and how they're built. I can't talk specifics about it. But, you know, for example, those, those doors, those doors are essentially doors that are from like on MRAPs. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're very they're, thick. They're hydraulically operated. Like they get training on how to open them, you know, uh, because you can't, you can't just open that door. Like it's, there's, a, there's a control to it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Those, you know, the tires are, the tires are as big as semi tires and you can't appreciate that until you're right next to it. I mean, that thing is a tank, but they, but it, but it weighs so much that, so he was going from, I want to say Madison to Milwaukee and it's too far of a drive for the limos. There's a risk associated with that too, with, with him being on the open road. Uh, so we actually had to load those on the, on the plane and fly them. It ended up being like a, like a 14 minute flight, you know, for us. But, uh, I get these mixed up. We were either in Milwaukee last or Madison last. I, I, I forget, but, uh, we met Katy Perry <laughs> at the last <laughs> location because at, at the, uh, and I want to say this was in Madison, People might remember uh, she did like a concert, like like she was singing at whatever his last kind of push was, his his last event. She was wearing this blue, you know, pencil skirt that said Hope on it. It was a blue skirt, and so yeah, we met her um, while you know while she was there because uh, we were kind of hanging out with the uh, Secret Service because that's who we were carrying. But yeah, it was a really really cool experience. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, anything to do with the. Uh, um that, you know, with, uh, the president of the secret service guys. And, you know, I was, I was, I, I worked out of Washington DC with my, with my passenger airline and, uh, you know, you'd always meet, you always meet guys, secret service or, you know, FBI guys and they, you know, they're always, they always, uh, you know, couldn't be, couldn't be any nicer every time they came on the plane, you know, they, they check in with us and say, hi, you know, or in this seat and, you know, they identify themselves and, you know, they, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing, uh, it's amazing how many federal agencies have an enforcement arm and uh, how many of them are just, you know, everyday normal, normal people just, you know, doing the best, you know, the best they can, you know, and uh, I, I, you know, a lot of these guys work, you know, really difficult jobs. Uh, you know, well, yeah, last time, I think the last guys I flew were, they were with the secret service and they were working on a counterfeit. They were, they were investigating counterfeit money of uh-huh. some kind. Um, they didn't tell me the specifics, specifics, but you know, it's always interesting to hear what these guys do and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot that, of unsung yeah. heroes in in the government. Um, when and there's also a lot that those agencies do that a lot of people don't don't realize. When I was in Afghanistan, uh, deployed to the special operations unit I was in, it wasn't just coalition forces and military that that were part of that special operations arm. It was three letter agencies like the FBI, the Federal Bureau, the Federal, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation was out there, um, target hunting as well. Uh, and of course, so was the CIA. So, so we were helping a lot of, a lot of three letter agencies out there that were part of the, you know, special operations, uh, you know, task force. You know, the, the, the CIA, uh, the CIA is the scariest part of, uh, any, anything in our government. Uh, the fact that they do not have oversight and they don't have regulations is, is, uh, 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 something I can't believe that is still going on, but, um, yeah, they they basically answer to the president, and then they are 
really there's no there's no there's no oversight to them. They they have the congressional oversight in terms of their budget, but that's about it. Um, yeah, it's it's tough, man. Because like at the same time, they're 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 doing some they're doing work that it's almost a religious experience. Like you kind of have to have faith that what they're doing is in the best interest of the sovereignty of our country, you know, but at the same time, generally speaking, if you have to operate in the shadows, you're probably doing some sketchy shit. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, they, they go to the, they go to the places and do the things that, you know, that the U S government can't do or can't be seen doing. And right. You know, now, you know, whether that's right or wrong, I'll leave that up to the individual, some to each individual person to make that determination. Um, you know, I just, uh, oh man, just, you just read about some of you, if you read back, and, you know, about some of the history of the CIA and some of the operations that they've conducted, it's, it, it, it just gives you this creepy feeling about the, about what they do. And it's, um, you know, interesting stuff, super interesting stuff. But, uh, um, the, uh, they, I, I, I wish there was a little more control from somewhere in our government over that organization. Look, or, excuse I, me, over, over that organization. I think of uh, I think of Jack Nicholson's char- uh, character in A Few Good Men when I think about the the CIA. You know, it's this thing that it's this kind of char- character or caricature, I guess would would be the better word of uh, this person who does things that maybe we. <laughs> We can't fully comprehend, right? Yeah. But there's still an ethic that we're chasing or that we believe in, and this person kind of flies opposite of that, you know? Like that, like that famous speech, you know, uh, you know he talks about uh, – I forget the speech exactly, but basically he, he, he's got this point where he says, you want me on that wall, you need me on, my, on that wall. And, and to some degree – Maybe that's true, you know, of the of the CIA. I, I'm I'm not sure, you know. It's it's a it's a very complex issue for sure. You know, when I it, it, I got a I got a funny story about the CIA. I got two of them actually. It's really weird. Uh, so the first one was uh, when I was in high school. I, I went to this uh, this youth forum in Washington D.C. on it's uh, it was on defense, intelligence, and diplomacy, and so. Uh, I was there for a week, and over the course of a week, got to do some really cool stuff, met some really important people. This was, oh my God, this was back in 2006, so President Bush, it was, you know, Bush was still president. Um, you know, we spent a day at Quantico, we got to shoot, you know, we got to, like, shoot, shoot grenade launchers and stuff. They took oh, us that's out, pretty like, rad. The yeah, they, they took us out, like, on the fast attack boats and stuff. It was pretty neat. But, um... I'll never forget, like, you, and there was different, like, experiences you could, like, sign up for. So I was like, oh, I'll go to Quantico. And, like, there was, like, a tour of the CIA at Langley. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So it we, sounds we like a list of excursions whenever you take a cruise. Yeah, kind of like that. So we go down there, and, like, we walked in, like, we walked in, like, and, like the, the tour guide meets us. And they're like, hi, welcome to, like, the CIA. We've declassified this entrance and uh, the hallway and the bathroom and the room we're going to take you to. I was like, oh, okay. So that we go down there because you, apparently you need a, just a top secret clearance just to walk in the front, just to get through like the front like security area. Yeah, so, well, in in the special, like again, back to the special operations community, there was a lot of places like that where you had to have a class uh, a classification just to get behind a door or, or or get through a hallway. Yeah, yeah. So so like they walked, you know, they walked us down a hallway. They told you know, they gave us a whole presentation on what on what the CIA does. 
and they were like, yeah, so, you know, enjoy yourself. Look, you can walk down the hall and look at the pictures. And uh, when you, you know, when you tour, when you guys are ready to go, you can just meet the bus driver out front. So we were there for an hour. It was cool, but okay, whatever. You know, then fast forward, uh, fast forward, uh, uh, five years, 2011. And, and, you know, Twitter, you know, I got on Twitter around 2011. I was like, oh, cool. I was like, look, the CIA made it, made a Twitter account. I hit follow. I was the first, I was the first person to follow them they had no followers and didn't follow anybody no bullshit and i swear to god wow swear to god and and the cia requested to follow me as soon as i hit follow on them and i was like <laughs> and i was like you know i probably should i should probably uh... just get off twitter now and i got off of twitter i i like uh, very shortly afterwards like i shouldn't let them follow me and i should get i, I need to get off of this because hey, i was like no to their credit <laughs> at least they asked <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, I guarantee. I guarantee you, my name was in the prism system. Look at they were looking at they were looking at my my whole background as soon as I did that. Um, but, uh, That's too but, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was like, oh my god, and uh, um, yeah, I, I it freaked me out a little bit. I was like, no, I did not. I, I do not need these people following me. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, they the CIA effectively scared me off of Twitter for a while. That's awesome. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So. Well, I don't know how we got to talk about the CIA. Uh, we, you want me to go back? Yeah, to I was. Or? I was just thinking. I was just thinking. Like this is, this is a problem that I've noticed in a lot of uh, a lot of these podcasts that I'm doing. It's that it's very easy for me to kind of branch off pretty far from the original topic. I think I do a decent job of getting back to it, but we de- like because of the lack of structure, which is a good thing. That's one of the things that uh, you know I've, I've I've noticed that is. Uh, a consequence of the sort of lack of structure, but I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah. I, th- I think you last mentioned that you had gotten your commercial, uh, license cause that was after your, yeah, your yeah, instrument sure. rating. So if you can talk about yeah. now at this point, you can start earning money. And again, where are you at in terms of like how much you've invested at this point? So, so again, about a hundred thousand dollars invested. Um, and I think we left off. I was beaten around the desert and, and the right. left coast in a small, in a small airplane with a butt with a, a good friend of mine now. And, uh, um, came, came back to Los Angeles and you need at least 250 hours of flight time to, to get a commercial, just to get your commercial pilot's license. So I have about 200, I have a little over 250 hours and I take my, a, a check ride, what we, a, we call it a check ride. That's, that's a test for your for your license kind of like how you have to go to the dmv and take a driver's test same type of deal except you're flying an airplane i uh, take my check ride for my commercial multi-engine license so that was my first commercial license um so now i can legally go out and make money flying around in multi-engine airplanes but i cannot do that for a single engine airplane yet um so i did that and then uh i actually had to put training on on hold for about three weeks uh after, right after, shortly after that, my, my, my good friend, uh, my, my best friend growing up passed away. Um, mm. he was a pol- police officer in Nashville and he got, uh, got killed in the line of duty. Um, oh, man. sorry to hear that. so, so, um, y- you know, that kind of threw me for a loop for a little bit. So I, I, I had to come back to the East coast and go to the funeral and, you know, just take some time for myself. So I came yeah. back, uh, came back and then you know i was out of i was out of the fly i was out of flying for like a month and you know as a young as a as a new pilot you know relatively little experience you know a month off is it's huge because you know it's a very perishable skill at first um it still is a perishable skill now but um it, you know you have so much you have so much now i have so much experience and so much time in, in the flight deck that uh 
a lot of things are just you know second nature. Sure. Uh, and then there's you know little little you know, like kind of like the eye, the eyes and the you know the the dots of the eyes and the cross of the T's that you got to just got worry about when you don't fly for a little bit. Well, flying um, is is very similar to to trades work in that uh, in that way, and I think the training like it, it it sounds like it's very similar as well. You know, in in a trade, you're kind of flying with or you're working with somebody who's who's imparting onto you like kind of kind of the wisdom and experience and you know techniques to do things a little better or, or uh, and whatnot and and just like a skill, any skill, if you don't practice it, well, it it sort of erodes. You know, absolutely. Yep, and that's a very, very true thing in aviation. And, and you know, the less experience you have, and the fewer hours you have, and the less often you do it, it, it it's detrimental. So, uh, um, let's see. So I um, had my commercial multi, and then the way the program works is they they had a they had their flight instructor school, CFI, so certificated flight instructor. They had their their flight instructor school for the West Coast, out of uh, the North Las Vegas Airport. So. I uh, go out to North Vegas. I was out there for about a month. It was, the, it was that was in June of fourteen, and uh, I came I came back to LA on July July you know basically July fourth weekend of uh, twenty fourteen with a flight instructor rating in multi engine aircraft. So now I'm legally allowed to teach people other pilots how to fly multi engine airplanes. I can I can give them training. So okay. that's you know and, and and as a new pilot in the civilian world. That is, uh, you know, flight flight instructing, basically teaching people how to fly airplanes is is generally your first job, um, and it's it's and it's it's an entry level job, and it's honest, it's hard work, but you know, I'll tell you what, you can make you can make okay money doing it if you find a decent flight school, mm-hmm. um, but um, so now I can now I'm qualified to kind of get a job somewhere like at a flight school or you know, uh, you know doing what the guy who taught me how to fly was doing, right. Um, so I go back to LA and then in the course of, uh, uh, a week, once I got back, I got my commercial single engine. So it's, 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 it's weird how it works with the FAA. So if you get a multi-engine rating, you're only allowed to do multi-engine stuff. And if you want to add on single engine to your commercial pilot license, you have to go take a test in the single engine airplane. So I did that. And then I, um, did an add on to my flight instructor license because a pilot license and a flight instructor license are two separate things. Um, your flight instructor license is simply a license to, that allows you to teach. It, it's not a pilot's license. Your pilot's license is what allows you to legally fly aircraft around in the sky. Uh, you know, uh, that's your license. So there's two distinct things. A flight instructor license does not give you the right to go up and fly with just that license in your wallet. You have to have your pilot license with you. Um, so then I got my single engine, uh, instructing license and then, um, and then I finished the program. Um, I was supposed to get an instrument instructor license and, uh, it just, it, in terms of, I, I, you know, just because I took that break, um, when my friend passed away, I got behind in the program and like basically the funds had run out. So I paid for a rating I didn't even get, mm. um, which really sucked, but it's okay. Um, I, a month later I got it on, I got my instrument instructor so you could teach people how to fly in, you know, uh, cloudy weather and stuff like that. Um, I got that uh, rating in uh, September of 14. So I went basically from a private pilot to a CFII, which is, let's see, private pilot, multi, private multi, instrument, um, commercial multi, commercial single, 
five, six, uh, yeah, it, there was eight licenses done in uh, nine months. Um, now, most people who do that tend to take five to six years to do that, that much work. Wow. Um, and that was, that was flying every, uh, other than the time I went to, um, I came back to the East for my friend's funeral. I, I flew or was down at the flight school every single day. There's there were no, literally no days off. Um, but you know, it's, it wasn't really like work. It was like, man, I get to go and fly and like, you know, where are we going to go today? What cool things are we going to see? Where, what are we going to experience? So it was always like an adventure. Um, so then I started working for a flight school in Los Angeles. And while I was there, they get, they, the, the school paid for me to get my CFII, my instrument instructor rating, which was great. So I didn't have to pay for that, which, you know, saved me a lot of money. And then shortly after that, I got an offer from a, a little airline that uh, is now out of business. Um, and uh, they're, they were called Seaport and uh, they're, they're out of business. Um, and they could hire pilots. Um, they flew little aircraft, single engine aircraft um, that were basically the size of like a Suburban. Think of, I uh, could seat nine people. And, uh, and we'd fly them around all over the place. So uh, I was based in Memphis, but they had bases, they had crew bases in Memphis, Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, San Diego, and up in uh, Juneau, Alaska. So um, they're flying around like, I, a, I, like a Pilatus? Uh, yeah, a Cessna Caravan. So okay, uh, gotcha. kind of like they did. They, uh, they 208, did have right? Pilates, yeah, 208. They did have Pilatus TC 12, um, but one of uh, a crew gear, uh, landed one without putting the gear down. Hell and yeah. uh, that was like the second time in like 10 years that it happened there. So mm. they got rid of them. So the Cessna Caravan, its landing gear are just fixed out. So like you, you don't bring the landing gear up. They're just always down. Um, you know, and again, you're pretty, pretty inexperienced pilots flying here. So it's, uh, it's probably a good thing. They went to a simpler airframe for the, for the operation. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, so I began my odyssey of insanity with this airline. Um, and, uh, you know, I moved, so we, I moved back East to, you know, my fiance was living down on the Gulf coast at the time. And I moved back to Memphis because I wanted to be close to her and I wanted to be home. I, I, I was tired of living on the West coast came back and was flying flying out of memphis and uh man we'd go you do eight legs in a day we'd take off we'd do a thing we had a trip called the local we'd take off in uh we'd go out to hot springs arkansas and then from hot springs arkansas to a town called uh el dorado not el dorado but el dorado <laughs> arkansas uh and then from there we'd go over to dallas love field or down to houston bush intercontinental and then uh, we do all those legs right back to Memphis in the same day. So you do eight legs in a day. Wow. Or we'd, uh, yeah, or we'd do something like uh That's a way to Memphis rack up Paris. hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. There we'd go Memphis, Harrison, Arkansas, Harrison, Arkansas, up to uh, uh, Kansas City International, Kansas City International, up to Salina, Kansas, Great Bend, Kansas, then back to Kansas City, then back out to Salina in a day, layover in Salina, which is a little town. You ever had Red Baron Pizza? that's the only thing that really comes out of Salina, Kansas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, what else? Uh, or if we went East, we'd go, uh, um, Memphis to Tupelo and then Tupelo up to Nashville. And then, uh, we, we did this run for a while over to Athens, Georgia, which is really cool. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, cause, uh, we'd, we'd land there during, uh, I was working there in the fall. So like, I'll never forget it. We landed in Athens. It was the weekend they were playing Tennessee at home. Uh, Georgia University of Georgia is playing Tennessee, and we we landed in the tower at the airport had a uh, had a uh, fake uh, 
uh, had a fake Smokey, you know, Smokey, the, 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 the hunting dog that Tennessee has is one of their mascots uh-huh. hanging from a, hanging from a noose from their tower. It's a bit and aggressive. I was, like, oh, I was like, Oh my God. It's a bit <laughs> aggressive. A generally, generally being in the South, you, it's, it's, it's a bad move to put anything on public display via noose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, Again, this was this was 2014 or 20. This was 20. That's almost hard to believe that they did that. Wow. 20. It was 2015, and it was a different world back then. I feel like. Um, <laughs> Maybe. No, no, I mean, no, hell, that, was, that was only five years ago. No, this was 2014. Actually, this was fall of 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so we were flying around, and uh, um, I worked there. I worked at the Seaport for about 11 months. And uh, so, in my first year as a professional pilot, with all these ratings and hundred thousand dollars in debt, I made eleven thousand um, dollars. I was man, I was poor. That was the poorest I've ever been in my life. I was poor. I was poor actually then, than when I was in college, working you know doing odd jobs in college. You know, working at the uh, I worked at the newspaper uh, in college for a while. I you know did and I worked at a couple of different departments at Mississippi State. You know, it was a minimum wage job, but I was making more money doing that than I was flying people around an aircraft. Yeah, and, uh, and, and again, it, it, it speaks to kind of the problems that face the aviation industry. I mean, pilots, you know, most pilots are not paid, you know, that great. You know, if you consider the investment in their education, you know, relative to the investment in their education, and then, you know, the sort of climb, again, like regional pilots have it rough. I mean, you know, they're constantly well, quick turning. They're constantly. This, this, was, this wasn't even regional flying yet. I mean, this was like pre-regional. Kind right, of, kind right. Of but still, it, it, um, it, it's a problem that plagues like the industry as a whole. And, and, and again, a lot of people think that these airlines make like crazy amounts of money, but they operate on pretty thin margins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's insanely thin. Um, now, Seaport was an interesting case. They operated what they under a, a federal program called the essential air service basically small towns uh that don't have any air service were granted uh were basically subsid had routes subsidized by the federal government to get them connectivity connected into a largest the largest city with airline service so that's why we would always go from memphis to a small town and then to like another big town like like dallas or houston or back to memphis or up oh, to Nashville. okay yeah so it's, it's a federal program that uh that that's all over the country uh it's you know they have it a lot in the south, uh, Midwest. They have a lot of it. Uh, and then like up in Alaska, uh, in Alaska, it's, it's, it's vital. Uh, in Alaska, there would there would be towns that would starve without it. Um, wow. So it's a, uh, you know, in the set, down here in the lower forty eight, I, I don't know if it's truly essential because you know if you live in Tupelo, you can hop in, in your car and be in Memphis in forty five minutes if you need to get a flight. Um, yeah, it, but, it, uh, it might be a socioeconomic factor there. Uh, yeah, know, maybe people yeah, that and, and, living in small towns typically on, are on the lower end of the of the uh, you know poverty class. You know, so uh, that that, the, the that could be a were, part of it. The tickets were insanely cheap. I mean, they were uh, they were like you could go from Memphis to Dallas. You know, now there's three stops along the way, but you can go there for fourteen dollars. Like, no but, kidding. Yeah, it was crazy. Because um, again, it was all subsidized by the by the Fed. So, you know, the airline didn't really have the airline didn't really have an incentive to make a lot of money. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like uh, I think it was at the end, at the end of my year working there, it was like eleven thousand dollars or something like that I had made. Thank God I was living uh, in my parents' place. Uh, I think my parents never got rid of their house in Memphis. They got remarried, by the way. I don't know if I said that. Yeah, yeah, but, you uh, did, you did, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, they called you up and said, Hey, we're married again. Hey, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's see here. So then I was sitting in the crew room, uh, at seaport, uh, about to go flying for a whole day. And I was looking at the newspaper of all things, you know, who finds, who sees anything in a newspaper anymore. But the local paper in Memphis said, Oh, new, new regional airlines starting up based in new Orleans flying Saab three forties. So I'm like, Oh, well, Saab is, a badass airplane. It's a big turboprop. So a turboprop is basically a, uh, a jet engine with propeller on the front. Yep. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, that's the easiest way to kind of describe it. Yeah, for sure. For it's sure. a, it's a big twin engine airplane and they're based out of new Orleans. Well, I love new Orleans and I, you know, I'm intrigued and, and, and you know, I'm assuming and the way I was being paid, how little I was being paid. I was like, surely there has to be, um, there has to be a job that pays better. And uh, I guess, you know, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Let me say this. I was also in flight instructing while I was working at Seaport. So I was teaching people to fly on my days off just to have an, just to have an income which where I could, like, you know, pay down, just, you know, start paying off my student loans and, you know, just have somewhat of an income. So between my two jobs, I think I made, I, th- I made, I made, I still only made like $19,000 total for the year mm-hmm. between both those jobs. It was, it was a tough year. It was a really tough year financially. But, you know, I was living at home and, you know, luckily I didn't, you know, didn't have a house, didn't really have, a, you know, a new car. I didn't have a new car or anything. So, you know, it, you know, I was just, just getting by, which is all I needed to do at that point. You know, I, I can, um, I can put that, put that kind of income there into perspective. When I was in high school, my senior year, I was making $10 an hour and I clocked in like a little over 2000 hours, which is 2000 hours is 50, 40 hour work weeks. Uh, and I made 20 grand. You know, so that and that was me working off of uh, or working at an auto shop, essentially like doing some stuff like welding here or there, um, building custom exhausts, but mostly cleaning up the shop. And so for me, for me, like you were you were making less than somebody could make like like in high school working, working at ten dollars an hour. That's how significant that that nineteen thousand dollars is. Plus, you're doing it in Memphis. I could have. Exactly. I could have made more money literally working at McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's, there's no um, doubt about that. Not to, not to say working at McDonald's is a bad job. It's, it's actually, they're, uh, from what I understand, they're for an entry level position. They're a pretty good place to work from, from what I've, uh, from what I've heard. But, uh, um, yeah, it was, it was a tough year financially. But going back, I saw, I heard about this airline starting up. They're called Glow. They're out of business now, also, unfortunately. Um, so GLO. Tough industry. Yep, tough, tough industry. Thin margins, like we were talking about. So I was like, oh, I'm going to apply to this place. Um, so I looked all over the internet, couldn't find him, couldn't find a website, couldn't find anything. Looked on Facebook, couldn't find anything. Twitter, of all places. You know, remember how I told you I got scared off? Of, yeah, uh, yeah. Scared off of uh, the, the Twitter by the CIA? Well, I go turn my Twitter back on, see if they're on there. And sure enough, they have a Twitter. So I tweeted my resume at them. <laughs> and, and Did it work? I, it worked. They called me the next day. I, and then uh, they were. Uh, it was interesting how it worked. So Glow was the name of the of the brand of the airline, but it was actually operated by another company out of Nashville. Um, so basically, it's a, it's what they call an ACMI, Aircraft Crew Maintenance and Insurance. They're they basically, if somebody wants to start an airline or do something with airplanes, you know, have a service of some kind with airplanes, and they don't have an operator certificate, they they turn to a company like this. And there's a lot of them in the U.S that provide wow. the crews, the planes and all that. So I worked for this company out of Nashville. So I, uh, 
I get called. They're like, hey, can you come up? You know, they, they go, hey, can you do a Skype interview? Like literally the next day I said, yeah. So I did a Skype interview. I had a shirt and tie on, uh, you know, sitting in my office chair and I had a pair of boxers on while I was sitting there because <laughs> <there go>. <laughs> having a Skype interview on my computer. So, so he goes, okay, sounds good. Can you uh, come up to Nashville? I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I go up to Nashville, um, and they, they, I go up to Nashville. They offered me the job, which was awesome. I was thrilled, thrilled. Um, took a drug test, and uh, this was in November of uh, this was yeah. So this was in November of fifteen or October of fifteen. Um, and I took the drug test. They go great. Um, you have to be on a plane to Miami in two days for training. I said, oh okay. So find myself down in Miami uh, in uh, at a school called Pan Am. And, uh, uh, getting trained up on this new big airplane, uh, and turns out I was me and one other person were the two initial pilots on the seniority list. We were the first two pilots of the airline, which was really cool. Oh, wow. Uh, so we went through this whole process of, uh, oh, FAA certification for the airline. We developed, we had to develop the procedures for the airline and, you know, how, how they want the plane operated. That's it kind was, of a lot uh, of responsibility, was, man. It was a lot of work, a lot of responsibility, and something I'll never get to do again. I'm uh, really, really grateful I got to do it. It was, was a really interesting time. I'd never want to do it again, though, because <laughs> it, it, it is a painful, arduous process with a lot, a lot of work that goes into it. Um, so we were in training for about a month, um, and it was quick training, and then we have to prove to the FAA that we, we can, you know, safely operate these planes. So we <clears throat> are flying them around our system. So we're going, so the initial you know, system was New Orleans. It was always out and back. So you'd go from New Orleans somewhere and then back to New Orleans. Um, so our first three cities of service were Memphis, Shreveport, and uh, Little Rock. So we went to all the stations and trained up all the ground crews and got the airports welcomed us. It was really interesting. And then um, the, I was a, a co-pilot, a first officer at the time. So the captain and I actually had to go up to Kansas uh, to where the, uh, an FAA inspector, safety inspector uh, who had to give us the final blessing was, and we had to fly him around Kansas. So we were up in Kansas again. I found myself in Kansas again, flying around uh, Wichita and all these little towns um, flying in and shooting approaches. And it was, Now what's uh, he looking it, for? It, you know, he's looking for that we, you know, know our emergency procedures, how, what we know how to operate the aircraft, we can fly it safely, that we basically are, are just generally like have a, have a plan set forth, like how future crews are going to be trained on this aircraft and how and like, you know, what does that training consist of? So we'd show them all of our, all of our books and manuals and all that. And then we'd go out and actually like, you know, take what we had developed and apply it and show them we know we know what we're doing, basically. Um and then it was, he was, he was a really cool guy because he was, he, you know, we were just, we were just flying around VFR. So VFR means visual flight rules. We weren't necessarily going to any specific airport. We were just out flying. Um, so we would do a few things. He'd be like, Hey, I'm hungry. Let's dip, let's dip into that airport. If you land, they, they, they give you a free buffet. So we, <laughs> we kind of made an afternoon out of it and it, it was a really cool experience. And, uh, yeah, sounds you know, like we got it. Through, yeah, we got through it and, uh, it was, uh, it was a uh, Christmas day that we did that up in, uh, 2015 that we did that, uh, flying around Kansas, um, came back to new Orleans and like literally the next day I flew the first commercial flight for the airline, the first revenue flight for the whole, for the airline. Um, let's see, I was there for, I was with them. I was with them just a little under, a little under almost, uh, like uh, almost two years. I was there for like a year, 
a year and eight months about. Oh. Um, and, uh, we lived in new Orleans and it was a very magical time. Um, <laughs> I, it was, uh, it was cool. You know, I, I was making $35,000 now. I felt like I had died and went to heaven in terms of like my income doubling basically almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, which was great. And, uh, and you probably and then, had, uh, had more time as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, well, and then, well, I was flying like crazy. I mean, I was flying 80 to 90 hours a month, easy every month. Um, and then, um, uh, about eight months in, I got, I got, I got, I was, I was asked if I wanted to upgrade to captain. I was like, absolutely. Let's do this. So uh, I upgrade to captain. Uh, well, I, well, I went to Houston to a, a place called flight safety. They do simu- flight simulators and they, they train right, air, right. Uh, air, yeah, airplane I've, I've flown a flight safety, uh, simulator, two of them actually. Yeah. And the, flight safety is a huge organization yeah, all over yeah. the country. They pretty much uh, service all, all of, all of the air force stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're all, they, they, they're kind of like the leaders in, 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 in aviation simulation and, around the world. And people should know these are no ordinary simulators. These are full motion simulators. Um, you, you get the feeling, the sensation, like when you're in a bank that you're actually making the turn, uh, you, you can log it, as, you can log it as flight time in, for in sure. certain simulators. Right. And that's, what I was going to get to like, you can, uh, you know, you could essentially get an entire PPL without, without leaving the ground in theory. Yeah. But. yeah. It, it, it's, 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 it's wild. Um, so I go to, I go to flight safety in Houston and I, I complete my captain upgrade. But while I did my captain upgrade, I had to get my final license that everybody needs, um, to be, uh, to be able to, to be able to, you know, glow didn't operate under normal, like, uh, uh, airline rules that, um, that like American or Delta operated under. So I was able to get hired there without 1500 hours. I got hired there with about 900 hours. There you go. Um, and, uh, um, it's very it's hard to find operators that do what Glow did because the, the 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 trouble of getting certified was was is is quite a quite a process. Um, so uh, you have to get what they call an airline transport pilot license. Now, um, most people say, uh, you know, are you a commercial pilot? Well, most pilots, you know, who work as a, a professional pilot say, well, yeah, I have my I have a commercial grading. But really what allows you to go be an airline pilot is your airline transport pilot license. You have to have one of those. We call it an ATP for short. Right. Um, so I took my ATP check ride. At the same time, I took my type rating ride for the airplane. Now, on large aircraft over 12,500 pounds, you have to have what we call a type rating. That is a license to fly that specific aircraft and just, just that model of aircraft. So. Um, you know, as an airline transport pilot, I can't just go out and hop in 747 and say, all right, time to go flying. Can't do that. You have to go through a training program just for that airplane and be licensed to fly that specific airplane. Um, so now we're talking about, uh, you know, luckily the, the companies absorb the cost of me getting this rating and the type rating because it would, it would be, you know, $50,000 to do all of this. Right. Um, um, so I take the check ride. I pass, I pass my captain upgrade. Um, well, the first part of my captain upgrade, I get, you know, got my airline transport pilot license and then uh, I go back to new Orleans and, uh, I have to do what's called an IOE that's, that's called, uh, or OE, excuse me. OE is called operational experience. So basically I had to go out with a qualified captain and an instructor pilot at the airline, uh, who it's weird cause I was senior to him by like five months. I, I had a lot more time on the airplane than him. Uh, and he was 
operating in, within the constraints of the program that I helped develop. So it, uh, I actually, it was, it's technically I was a student, but I knew more about the whole situation than he did, which was really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, he's a good buddy of mine. So we had a good time and uh, flew, flew for a couple days and, um, um, you know, got my blessing. To, I was a safe captain and boom, I'm, I have my first captain position. Now I'm building valuable uh, multi-engine turbine. So turbine meaning uh, a jet engine, essentially. Uh, pot, uh, captain time which is what everybody in the whole industry cares about. That's what the industry cares about. You need that kind of time to, pro- to progress your career. So I flew for a while and the airline was having a lot of financial issues. I mean, just tons of issues and uh, schedules were, were tough. And um, I, I was working on average 26 days a month. Um, mm. so, so I, you know, I was getting really burned out and it, it, it the support, the, you know, air, you know, to have a get an airplane off the ground requires a lot of people to do a lot of different, a lot of work in a lot of different areas. That's right. Um, and the support staff, unfortunately, just the support just wasn't really there. So I received a job offer from um, a regional, a, a, a true regional airline, um, and uh, you know, I uh, um, be, went to training. Basically, uh, I, I'm not going to say who uh who the airline was yeah fair uh, enough i don't fair have enough. permission to use their uh their name however they um uh they they were owned by one of the major u.s airlines so one of the when i say major u.s airline that's delta united or american mm-hmm. and uh I, my theater of operations was primarily in the east coast um so we uh when i went to training i was in training from uh january of 2017 until the uh until march of 2017 so it was a three-month process and uh and uh excuse me i wasn't home for three months basically it was a long training process i was uh doing training up in ohio actually right um and then really like really you know my scope of where i started flying really started to open up because uh with the regional you went everywhere Uh, i flew crj aircraft so canada regional jets we we flew the CRJ 200 model, which seats 50 passengers. Uh, the CRJ 700 mo- model. Yeah, it's a really which, popular uh, regional plane. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, which uh, sat 65, and the CRJ 900, which is the stretch version, which uh, sat uh, 76 passengers. And we flew. Oh my god! I've always uh, thought that that would be a fun plane to fly. You know, because it's 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 it's, it's large. I imagine the thrust to weight ratio is pretty excessive. Well, the the two hundredth a pig. It um, it doesn't have it, it, the two hundred was a, was the Challenger uh, business jet, and they just stretched the, the fuselage by I think like twenty three feet, and didn't change anything else on it. So the two hundred is very underpowered. Oh, okay. And uh, and uh, it's uh, has a lot. It was the it, it was the original it was the original regional jet. So it was revolutionary for its time in nineteen ninety, uh, but in twenty. 17 it was very outdated mm. uh the 700 of the three mod and they're all and you have a, if you get the license to fly the plane you can fly all three they're all the same airplane um the 700 and 900 have the same exact cockpit 200 a little bit different but not not too much um a couple you know different engines and it's not quite as automated but it's pretty much the same airplane um 
Yeah, I'm 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 told that the that the triple seven is a very easy plane to fly. It's very uh, you know all the controls. Like if you've flown any Boeing plane, you can usually get get uh, onto the triple seven and acclimate pretty pretty quick. Pretty quickly. You know the thi- the thing I the thing I find out the thing I'm finding is the the bigger the airplane, the simpler they get. <clears throat> um, like right now, I'm I'm training to fly the seven sixty seven, and the seven sixty seven simpler than the CRJ mm. by by miles. Um, Boeing makes, and I'm learning. I'm this is the first Boeing aircraft I'm going to be flying. I haven't flown it yet, but when I do, I can already tell this is a very uh, very simple aircraft that Boeing has put together, and it's very well well thought out and very intuitive airplane um, yeah which, I, I know with the c-17 whenever we had to maintain that uh it was first of all it was pretty simple to operate you know compared to say the plane i came off of which was the c5 which was built in you know originally in 1963 so a lot of a lot of things were automated there's no flight engineer there's a flight engineer is kind of a dying breed anyway uh but but everything's kind of controlled by you know algorithmic line line replaceable units and uh you know it was it was very very easy to uh maintain and and i know a lot of the pilots talked about how how easy of a plane it was to fly oh yeah yeah and you know uh, any 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 modern jet any jet that's been kind of modified even an older plane that's been brought up to you know you know been retrofitted with modern you know electronics right the, the it's it's all gone away from mechanical, you know, mechanical instruments and all that. So it's basically computers and, you know, computer, you know, computers determining what's going on and uh, telling you what's wrong or, or what the parameters of whatever you're looking at. And, um, and it's, it's simplified a lot of the systems in the airplanes, which is a good thing. The simpler, the, the simpler we can keep things, the better, in my when, opinion. Uh, when do you think we're going to move away from people flying, flying planes to, you know, a fully uh, autonomous commercial uh aviation no, not, industry not in our lifetime say that you much. don't think so no yeah, no mm-hmm. it ain't gonna happen what's I, your I just, what's uh, your perspective on that well let me put it to this i i i uh, right up until the day i left my regional airline i they, they were getting airplanes built this year 2020 most cutting edge technology you can you could want right now the 767 i'm training to fly has retrofitted to have the the 787 Dreamliner cockpit in it. So we're talking about some of the most advanced aircraft in the world that you can get. And every single day, the automation screws something up, messes up, um, doesn't recognize something. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, automation is a tool to enhance safety. Automation is not safety. What ultimately drives safety is decision making. And you know adherence to procedures, and uh, you know it's the people that 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 creates people and attitude create safety, and and how and preparation creates safety. Automation is simply a tool to enhance safety um, right now. And I don't in our lifetime, I I just I don't see the technology getting to the point uh, where where it's going to be fully autonomous aircraft flying around with people in it. Maybe one, maybe single. It'll be single pilot first, but I I think. I think it's still 40, 50 years away. And I mean, like, let's be real here. <clears throat> it, you know, secured U.S. You know, secured U.S. military drones have been hacked and brought down by by Iran, who was, you know, you know, not yeah, they were using twenty five dollar uh, software. Yeah, not to, to dis Iran here, but it's like you know, they're not exactly on the most cutting edge of the you know, technological, you know, you know, military power, and. You know, I would argue the United States probably is in terms of militarism around the world, and it got hacked. 
hmm, okay, so what happens when, when a 737 with 185 people gets hacked and there's nobody on the plane to do anything and you can't remote, remote in and take over from the ground? You know, I'm sorry, but that, that ain't good enough for me. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, it, it's not there. My, my opinion is that I, th- I think it's coming. I, I think we could see it in our lifetime. And uh, the, I think the technology is there. I mean, you know, Google's, Google can fly a, uh, a fully autonomous drone in a warehouse and throw footballs at it. And, it can, and at 60 miles an hour, it can evade the footballs. It seems to me that, that the technology exists, but it hasn't intersected with industry yet. You know, and uh, I, I think it's, I mean, look at a Tesla, you know, a Tesla is, uh, you know, is a pretty amazing thing. And the technology on that, maybe with the Google AI might be able to kind of accomplish those things. But I think also you're going to need advancements in say like uh, GNSS and GPS accuracy uh, because I, because we're moving away from ground-based nav aids uh, navigational aids uh which are what planes use to use to navigate and we're going to a strictly gps kind of kind of kind of construct so um i i do think that that there's advancements that that have to be made but i would hinge that that position on the uh, on the observance of moore's law that you know technology doubles you know every year or or two years so you've got this exponential you know increased rate of technological advancements and i think ai is certainly one that's going to uh benefit from that it, you, you know i i think the first place we're going to see fully autonomous aircraft flying around is, it will be the military I, sure. I've, talked to a lot of guys, I've talked to a lot of guys who thought who all think the f-35 is going to be the last man fighter the united states ever had yep yep um i agree um but it, you know i on the civilian side you know in the in the, in the civilian world i I don't see the FAA ever in a, for a, not in my lifetime giving the authorization up. I really don't because the F, the, if you got to look at who is the FAA other than the administrator who is appointed by, you know, somebody in, in government, the FAA is made up of pilots and, you know, and most of them are very highly experienced pilots and they all, they, they all know that the, 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 the shortcomings and pitfalls of current technology available to airlines. Cause you got to understand just because something can be done and be built right now or in the future doesn't mean it will, because you got to look at it like, uh, like uh, let's take American Airlines for example. American Airlines has fourteen hundred jets that are all at least about seventy million dollars. Okay, now we're going to rip out the cockpit and put in you know an automated system to, to you know to what save money for not paying paying two pilots. Okay, well let's look at the cost you know on, over the scale of your whole fleet doing that. And then, you know, the proving that you have to do in terms of, you know, getting Airbus, getting your Airbuses and getting your Boeing certified just to have those systems in it. I, the, the, it's going to be so cost prohibitive for such a long time. I, don't, I just don't see it happening for a very long time. I really don't. I'm going to. And then also, and then also with just, just with the vulnerabilities in, in ele- it just it, with electronic communication until there is a, a surefire, 100% sure way to, to protect that link with the aircraft and the ground and whoever can control, you know, override the controls from the ground. I don't, there, they, I don't think they'll ever certify to have, you know, be conducting, uh, you know, large scale cargo or passenger operations over, over the U S airways. I just don't think it'll happen. So I, I would take, I would take your, uh, your justification and actually say that, uh, like what you talked about was cost prohibition, 
that's at scale, you know, so, so, you know, take the cost of removing the cockpit, which I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to remove cockpits, but rather planes will be built that are fully autonomous. Now we can take a plane, let's say it's, let's say it is the case that it's a 767, all the space for say the, uh, that, that benefits all the pilots, you know, all the doors, all the panels, all the seats, all the electronics that would, that would be used for interfacing with the aircraft, all that would not have to be there. You t- really wouldn't even need windows up there. You know? No, you wouldn't need windows, and which would actually can, allow the plane to fly a lot faster. <laughs> right. And you could, well, there you go. So, so, so there's a, a potential efficiency there, but you can now fill all those, all those spaces. You can move the galleys up. You can fill all that space with seats. So where you see the cost prohibition at scale, I say, well, you can also scale the benefits of being able to sell more seats and increase your margin, which will only, which will only increase your profitability because the salaries uh, that, that you're having to pay for the pilots are going away and they're being replaced, in fact, with increased revenue. I, again, I, I see where you're going. I, I and I think I think one day that's probably going to be the case. Yeah. I, I think that'll I think that'll be our children's problem or my grandchildren's problem. I, I don't think in our life. I don't think in our lifetime. I don't think they're gonna. There is right now, especially with COVID. COVID came out of so, so far out of left field for this industry worldwide that right now, like you know, right now Boeing Airbus hurting. Almost, or they're hurting almost as bad as the airlines are because all these airlines have canceled thousands of airplane orders mm-hmm. because they're all about to go bankrupt. Well, and so, and like, Boeing's Boeing's know, hurting before this because of the seven thirty seven Max problem. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So and uh, and uh, you know the seven three is a great airplane. Um, you know, and with the Max, uh, let me this: the seven thirty seven Max flew for about flew for quite a while here in the United States. We never had a crash. We never had a uh, um, never had any issues with it. And uh, not to rain on not 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 to talk back poorly about the deceased, but you know, um, pilots in the United States and pilots in Western Europe are held to a different standard than they are, and, and pilots in Canada as well, and are, are held to a different standard than they are in the rest of the world. Right. And, and I think other cultures kind of kind of contribute to that. And I like to point to, like, say, South Korea in in the in the eastern nations uh, context, uh, familial and social context is uh, very important. So you, you've got these high there's there's a scale of like high and low context cultures and high context cultures are ones I might have this backwards. I don't think I do, though, but they're ones where hierarchy matters. And so there's oh, yeah. a there's a famous um, there's a famous crash that happened in Guam. It was flown by South Korean uh, pilots, and South Korea has lo- had for many years struggled with with this sort of cultural issue where you know the co-pilot couldn't correct the pilot. Well, that's a that's a problem. That's a real problem, yep. and it was very true in the transcript uh, leading up to the crash of of this airliner. The co-pilot was, you know, using these subtle, passive, you know, kind of ways of saying, hey, maybe we should check the notams. And the, notice, the notams are the notices to airmen. And what he was alluding to was that the approach that they were flying had a degraded uh, uh, ability. And so by flying, flying that particular approach, using that navigational aid to get you down, down to the field, you, well, you couldn't fly it because it was giving the plane bad data. 
and it was notamed as out, right? But the the pilot wanted to fly that that particular approach, and they ended up coming in too low below the glide path and crashed into a mountain. And you can hear on this transcript, or, or read it rather, that this co-pilot is trying his hardest to say like, you know, you, you, hey, yeah, that, can we review that, the approach, you know, again? But not not like, even that was really direct, but he was saying it less direct than that. Well, and, and this is what we call, you know, crew resource management and human factors now in aviation. Right. And it's, it's a huge training point. Um, you know, it's, if you have a problem, you speak up and you'd be blunt about it. Like, that's right. Hey, hey, Brian, you're, I got half low on the glide path. You're slow. Raise your nose, add power, increase your speed. And it's then, and then, you know, so you, you identify the problem, you command. And then you have to, you know, you, you command, you command, and then you command a, uh, you know, a, a, a fix to the problem or, or a resolution to that issue. Right. And then you kind of walk it down, you know, a certain path here. And eventually you have to intervene. You have to intervene to, to preserve your life, to preserve the aircraft and everybody, the cargo or the people that are in the plane with you. Um, you know, so as a co-pilot, you know, as a co-pilot, you can't take an airplane from a captain. You can't do that. First officer doesn't have the legal authority to take an airplane from the captain. But I can say, go around. And in aviation, in the United States and in Western Europe, and for most airlines, if somebody says, anybody says, go around, that's, that's it. What you're doing is over. You, bring, you climb that airplane up and you try and we're trying again. It's right. like, like conversation's over. Um, so that's where a co-pilot has, you know, can can override a captain now a captain he can take an airplane he can say okay you're not you're not doing this right i'm taking the airplane from you and i'll, and I'll, I'll either go around or i'm going to correct the, the the undesired state of the aircraft but when you know how you're talking about uh, the, the crew in guam, guam here's a more recent example 2013 asiana airlines oh yeah 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 triple yeah. seven that crashed in um san francisco yep. luckily only i think i think only i mean it's sad but i think only the three people died that whole crash and they had 300 people on board almost yeah, um, that that crew had a captain who was very experienced, and he was an instructor captain. So he taught on this airplane. They had a co-pilot who was experienced, and then they had a full augmented crew. So they had two other pilots who would give those pilots a break while they were in flight because such a long flight. That aug that relief the relief captain and the relief first officer. The relief captain was an instructor pilot, and the relief first officer was both was also. An was, uh, was also very experienced in the airplane. None of them were new, but because culturally, the, you know, it was it's kind of like a faux pas to speak up and override the captain, the guy who's been deemed the head honcho of this flight. You couldn't, you couldn't, they didn't speak up. So mm -hmm. they literally sat there, four qualified pilots sat there and watched as they crashed the 777 into the ground. Yeah. And didn't say a word. Didn't and you, say a word. Uh, again, these cases, they're not exclusive to... Um, to the uh, to the eastern, you know, kind of hemisphere. Oh no! Um, but but it's it's more heavily concentrated in those countries, you know, in the East Asian countries uh, specifically. You know, unfortunately, the reason why the U.S. aviation system is safe now is because the regulations are written in blood. For sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the unfortunate like truth. Yeah. That's the unfortunate truth. I mean, how, why? Why does the you know why why was the industry sh just shaken up and all the pilot tra training and qualification standards all changed in 2009 and the, the effects went in, in, into place in 2014? Well, that's because the last deadly crash 
like crash of an air of a of, a, of an American airplane, not a, not American Airlines, but just a, a, an American airliner of any kind, was in 2009 up in Buffalo, the Colgan crash. Mm. Um, it was you know um, it was a it, it was a lot of factors that went into it. It was the the, the captain's experience, um, you know, and his proficiency wasn't you know was later found to be not very good. Uh, his co-pilot had been had commute. She lived in Seattle and was based in, New, in, in Newark, New Jersey. So she commuted across the country all night the night prior with the flu. They found out to go to work, um, and uh, there was bad weather. It was the airplane got iced up? There was ice all over the airplane, and mm. they stalled. They didn't recognize it, and uh, you know, and fifty people, fifty-four people died. You know, wow, um, and. That she, that crash changed everything, and you know people. You know the the FAA and and I think the flying public said enough's enough, and so they instituted. You know they required more more experience, hired you know different standards of training, different co- types of training as well, and you know other than that uh, poor lady that got that that, that got killed uh, in that accident with the Southwest uh, with the Southwest Airlines uh, window last year. There hasn't been a single death in, in the U.S. passenger system, basically, due to a crash in, what, uh, 11 years now. It's been, we're, actually, we're technically, in, I would say, in the golden era of safety of, of, of U.S. aviation right now in terms of, uh, in terms of airline flying. Right. Now, listen, I'm not saying there'll never be another crash because, you know, I think, unfortunately, it's just a matter of, you know, when, not if, you know, when there's another crash, not mm-hmm. if. We should put that yeah. statement into context because it's the golden era of aviation safety in a sa- in an aviation industry that is already the safest in the world by far. By far, there's nothing that can compare it to it. Right, and there's a lot that goes into that. You know, there's there's you know obviously having having regulations you know that are that are well written, um, but again, the culture. You know, you've you, you've got to have a culture of, of I'm I'm fallible, I'm I'm very culpable as well. And and I'll tell you, uh, there was a time that I called a go around from from inside the cockpit. Uh, we were we were doing these runs when I was deployed to Oman, it's a country southeast of Saudi Arabia. We're doing these runs into and out of Afghanistan, small little cargo runs, and we were coming back, and a pilot had to do a tactical approach into the airport or into the base I was stationed at. Uh, or deployed to uh, for proficiency, and it was a it was a very high like I want to say it was like a fifteen thousand foot drop, um, like a tactical insertion, and then you would kind of you know uh, you would flare up and then kind of land, but it it wasn't a spiraling descent. It was kind of like a straight out you know deep dive, and then uh, you would land, but you landed pretty quick. Well. Obviously, when you do that, you go through a lot of like kind of alerts and, you know, things that indicate, you know, for you um, speed messages that that come out through the enunciator panel. You know, you get all these lights and they come up, you know, faster than you're used to. And the pilot, what he was doing was he was silencing those those indications, but he wasn't looking at it. Right. And he silenced one. They. They went through their their approach checklist, and he silenced one that said "spoilers not armed," and so the landing spoilers spoilers are on top of the plane, and they help slow down the plane. Uh, but with without They're them important. being armed, they wouldn't. Were you were you in the seventeen when this was going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and so what they were, you know, basically we were going to land fast and not have the ability to slow down the uh, 
the airplane as well as, as, as we otherwise would be. Now, again, like we had brakes, we were light. It probably wouldn't have been an issue, but we might have maybe caught a brake on fire, something like that. So uh, right, right before landing, the, the uh, pilot will ask for a safety check, and somebody has to be up there that's, that's checking to make sure that the briefed configuration of the plane is actually the way the plane is configured. Now, I saw him click this thing, and it had spoilers uh, not armed on it, and that indication does not go away. You can't clear it un, un, until you correct it because the plane knows it's about to land. So uh, he asked for a safety check, and I said, uh, um, bad safety, uh, spoilers aren't armed. And, uh, and he's like, the spoilers are armed. I, I need a safety check because this is all over Interphone. And, and, I, and at this point, we're like a mile from the runway. I said, spoilers aren't armed. Go around. So we go around. I can tell he's pissed off. And, and he's like, why'd you, tell me, why'd you tell me to go around? And I said, because the spoilers are not armed. And he's like, the spoilers are armed. And he points to it while he's looking at me. And then he looks, looks back at the panel and he sees that it's not armed. And we run through every checklist from the initial descent to landing, you know, all that stuff. So, so we fly in the pattern and just knock out all these checklists and then uh, come in and land. Well, let me ask you this. When, when you said go around, was there even a question about what nope, he was going to do? not at all. Nope. He, he knew what he had to do. And afterwards, it took him about a day, but he called me in and uh, was like, hey, man, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. And, you know, I appreciate what you did. I know it's kind of hard to do. So even he recognized, like, okay, I've got to make sure that he understands that that is actually what I want him to do, you know? Because had he just, <laughs> like, left that interaction with him being pissed off at me, I would have less of an incentive to – help him and the crew out, you know? Now, again, you know, I, I was and, still going to do it, but. And that's what we call threat, threat and error management in, in aviation. So, you know, um, the best way to look at it is like, you know, okay, take a piece of Swiss cheese. There's holes in it, right? Okay. Yep. Yep. That's, that's one, that's one pilot. Take another piece of Swiss cheese and you just throw it on top of the other. Well, that one has holes in it too, but it's probably going to cover up the holes of the first one. That's the other pilot. And then all the systems and procedures you have, keep adding slices of Swiss cheese on top of one another, hopefully to the point where an error cannot make it all the way through every hole because one error generally doesn't cause an accident. It's when five or six or seven errors accumulate and that's what causes an accident. Right. Now, here's the thing. On a, on a big aircraft like that, if you land and the, and the, and the boards don't come out, spoilers, generally until, um, until you initiate reverse thrust, you, you can get the airplane back airborne. You, you, you'll have enough energy and momentum and power to, to get the airplane back going again. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, you know, and, and they also have, uh, uh, you can also get performance data to land aircraft without those operatives because sometimes they'll just be broken, you know, yeah. and the plane well, will still go fly. If you, you intended know? on landing that way, I agree that I would also yeah, say yeah. that there's a, there's a pilot response delay in trying to figure out why what you want to happen is not happening. And that Absolutely. delay may be critical in terms of getting the plane back off. So, and again, we and, don't know, and, and, but yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm not saying what you did was wrong. I no, I think what you did was the absolute right call. And good, right. Good right. On you no, I get you. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just simply pointing out like, you know, like the, the, of uh, these, uh, these modern airplanes, especially the C-17 are, very capable aircraft sure, as long as sure. uh, as long as you know and now listen if the crew was planning on you know not having any speed brakes okay they can do that if they needed to not not normal but they, they can do that and, and they, you know and to be fair that that plane can stop in four thousand feet you know so it's, it's an amazing <laughs> yeah that plane that plane is is 
that that plane's unreal. What that plane can do. Yeah. Um, it's 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 quite the uh, quite the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, um, I don't. Where what were we talking about a minute ago? We were talking about. I don't know how we got down the path of. Uh, hey man, it's all good. Stress. No stress here. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to. Not trying to derail the conversation. I'm just thinking. I was like, okay. No, no, no. It's, this is this is an organic thing, man. Uh, it's a, it's it's common for um, people on the podcast to like think that that they're they're, I guess, ruining the pathway of the conversation. But it's man, it's just a conversation. You know, pretty low stress here. So, you know, if we get off on a tangent, we can get off on a tangent. It's really not a big deal. So, it, it, you know, I'll tell you what. The, the the thing that I like most about aviation is like, you know, you're, uh, you know, you take off and, and, you know, and we all have, everybody, you know, has long weeks of work and, you know, you, you, you're like, God, why, why can't Friday get here? And, and, uh, um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be out of the office and yada, yada, yada. And, and listen, and, I felt the same way too. Like, man, I wish I was just home right now. I haven't been, you know, been home four days this month. I, I have four days off coming up. I really want to get home. But, you know, every time I like get up and get up in, in the air, I look out the window and I just have to like, I just always tell my, I tell myself usually once a trip, like someone's paying me right now to fly around in a, in a, in a $70 million jet at 500 miles an hour. And, and, you know, I would secretly, I would do this for free because it's fun and it's amazing. And it's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I mean, so, you, you know, when, when we, we talked about, you know, these, all the craziness and like, I haven't even gotten into like the crazy passenger stories. Uh, sure. but like we, 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 we uh, you know, I talked about the, the, the long days and the studying and the, the, the check rides and, you know, the moving, the mo- moving, we've, we've gone all over the country and, you know, the, this insanity, but you know, the company's going out of business and job interviews and this, that, and the other thing, you know, it's, you know, that's, that, that's the work. But when I actually have to go to work to do what I'm getting paid to do, that's not work. That's, that's, that's fun. You know, I, I, you know, for me going to work is getting in my car and driving to the parking lot to get through the airplane. But once I'm on the airplane, that is not work. Right. You know, right. So I, I consider I'm myself with you, lucky. I consider myself one of the luckiest people in the world because I, you know, it's it's comical. They 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 pay me to fly airplanes. I mean, like, yeah, I, I for, do that? for five years I was, you know, <laughs> my week would basically be waking up, going to a plane, and for the next like seven to twelve days I would fly to, you know, three different continents, multiple countries, you know eat food there, drink, drink beer there, have a good time. You know, I, I flew through Spain so many times that me and my buddies rented a golf locker and we put uh, a set of golf clubs in there so that we would have clubs to play with whenever we were in Spain. <laughs> and you, let me, I'm, I'm assuming you used it like once every two weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, well, okay. well, sometimes more than that, you know, it's it sort of, you know, depending what, uh, you know, where, where our, our destination was or where our mission was. So. But I would say probably, yeah, every, I was there twice a month. Yeah, probably, at least. But down in, uh, what, uh, Rota? Rota, uh, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really is a, um, you know, an absolute treat to get to do what I do. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, and right now it's, it's not a great time to be a pilot. Uh, I, I'm very lucky in, in the sense of where I, where I just got hired and the job I just began. Um, 
you, you know, um, a lot of my friends and former coworkers are, are going to, are facing, you know, uh, tough times, furlough, you, yeah. you know, being laid off here on October 1st. Um, and so it's, it's, I'm, I, I'm unbelievably lucky, uh, to be where I am right now. Um, well, and, and you're yeah. doing something that you, that you love, that you're passionate about, you know, uh, for me, aviation, which, which I'm actually getting back in, in, into the industry. Um, but, uh, for me, I always think about the reason I want to get my pilot's license is because there's this feeling you get as you take off and you leave, you know, the, uh, the bounds of the earth and you're elevated. And as you get farther and farther away, things seem to stop. It's as if the world is paused waiting for your return. Waves don't crash, you know, like it, it's, it's absolutely an incredible feeling. It's, it's like, and, and to me, it makes sense. So flight in say Greek, Greek mythology was associated with, uh, with being able to like kind of tell the future. So things that, f- that flew, they tended to have the quality of being able to see into the future. And there's also, you know, the aspect of flight is associated with, with, uh, usually a deity or some, some sense of divinity. And, and so there's this pure feeling that I get about being, being in a plane, flying, seeing the world from just a greater perspective. And that's something too, because perhaps being able to see in the future is, is a consequence of being able to expand your perspectives and being able to fly and see the world from a greater perspective is pretty incredible. You know, I, I can, I can sit on top of, I can stand on the ground and I can look out and I'm limited by what I can see. I can get on my, I can get on the roof of my home and I can expand my view. I can be at the top of a control tower and expand my view. When I'm 40,000 feet over the Midwest, I'm probably looking at 15 states, you know? Yep. And, and, you know, one of my favorite things about flying, when you're up there, and like you said, you know how the world's kind of on standstill, the, everything else kind of goes by the wayside. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, you're, you know, the thing is, the thing with airlines is like, you know, you you work with people from every walk of life, you know, they could be gay, they could be straight, they could be black, white, Latino, Asian, you name it. They come from all different backgrounds, religions, you know, uh, sexual orientations, you name it, you name it. I've flown with that kind of a person. Um, and it doesn't matter. It's kind of like, in a sense, it's kind of like the military in a way, because what, because when you're up there flying around, we have a job to do and you know, all that, all that BS, all the superficial stuff just goes out, just goes by the wayside. Our, our goal is to fly to make sure we get from point A to point B safely, get everybody there alive and intact and hopefully on time. And, uh, and you know, all that other, all the other nonsense just goes by the wayside. And it's really nice because you know, it's just two people, you know, the flight crew up front and even your flight and, and your flight attendants in the back are doing the same, you know, if you're flying people around, making sure that you're doing, you know, making sure this is a safe flight, as safe as flights possible. And, and it's nice because the, the, the lunacy of, uh, of the current climate in our country just gets shut out for a little while and you get in like, you know, your phone that we have our phones turned off and it's just nice to just be there and not have to, not have to hear about all the crazy stuff that just goes on in the world. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a safe haven in a way. It's really, it's really, as for me, that's how, that's how I look at it. I don't have to be inundated with CNN or Fox news or, you know, whatever your brand X of news source is. Um, you know, you don't have to be inundated with it constantly, you know, the world, right. you, you get, you, you get up there and you see, you, you know, you see a sunset that 
you know, that, you know, I'm not a religious person, but my God, like you see a, you see a sunset so beautiful in such a different way that you think like maybe only God could do something like that. Something yeah. so beautiful. I'll tell and, you, there's, uh, a, there's a lot of phenomenon that, that you're only going to see whenever you're, you're in flight as well. I mean, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to see the Northern lights. I've seen St. Elmo's fire, you know, and those are, you know, very, very unique and, 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 and interesting things, you know, I had a shooting star meteorite fall like right in front of the nose. I'm like, probably with, probably within a mile or two in the front of, in front of my airplane. Really? Back in where, yeah, dude, it came in low. And we're cruising down to Washington D.C. from uh, from uh, Burlington, Vermont, and just <laughs> big fireball right in front of us. It was like what the? You know, we were like, "What the fuck was that?" And, uh, and we were like, "I think I was like, man, I think that was a meteorite. I'm almost certain that was a small little meteorite." Yeah, dude. We no see kidding. All the I see him all the time. Now it's, I uh, used to like flying uh, and and using the um, the pilot's night vision goggles, so I didn't realize shooting stars happen. Uh, they, they are so common and so when you're looking oh, up at the sky yeah when you're looking up at the sky with like night vision goggles you're seeing like dozens dozens oh, yeah. of them they're yeah. so common like and yeah. and we're talking about in like a five minute period like it's outrageous how many shooting stars and they could be meteorites that are just falling or or moving all the time but but we can't see them it's crazy we live we live in a shooting gallery yeah we live in an intergalactic shooting gallery i know right but I, I, it's it's interesting because, like, like, you know, on the ground, you would not normally see these things. And, you know, by the, and by the time they get down to the ground, they're just, you know, specks of, like, you know, they're just full of specks of dirt by that point. But, uh, yeah, like, uh, up at 35,000 feet, man, to see them all the time, especially at night. Um, and then uh, I, I think my favorite thing is, uh, like, when you get out over, like, the Midwest or, you know, somewhere or, like, the South where there's just not a lot of, like, lights from, from big cities. Um, and it's so dark sometimes you can uh, – you can just see like the Milky Way galaxy, like just like like how you see like on the like an iMac computer, like on the background of like a, of the screen, like that, like you know, the intergalactic dust kind of everything. You can see that up up there, and that I always really appreciate that because like it's kind of it's quite kind of crazy to think like you look up and there's probably you know millions of you know stars and planets and moons and you know whatever it might be out there, and it's just, it's just really cool to think about, um, and you know it's just perspectives you don't get while you're uh, while you're on the ground and, you know, and that's mainly due to like, you know, just, you can't see it on the ground because, because of all the light from, you know, cities and towns basically. Yeah, man, I can, I can definitely resonate with that. You know, um, you know, my favorite place to fly around was the, uh, was, was the Mediterranean. I just love seeing, you know, the water's obviously beautiful, but there's all this rocky coast. And then when you get to the east in the um, GNC, like you've got all these scattered islands everywhere. And it's just, it's just absolutely beautiful. Flying over see, Dubai was cool too, because you got to see those, those palm tree islands. You see, you've flown in, you have flown in more cool places than I have, man. See, I, I was, I was junior at the airline, so I got to go to all the places that ended rapids and falls, like right. Grand Rapids, <laughs> which, hey, there's nothing wrong with Grand Rapids. If you go there, I uh, definitely think you should uh, check out the Elysian Fields Brewery. Good beer. Okay. Um, but, uh, um, you know, but it's Grand Rapids. Nothing against, again, nothing against Grand Rapids, but, you know, uh, for just what I was, just for the mission, the missions so far that I've been doing, I have, uh, I have seen every small town that you can see on, you know, from, from the, from the tip of Maine to basically, uh, Nebraska and, and south of there. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I did a lot of flying out west, you know, in the small little airports, but nothing into any of the big airports yet. So mm. I still got a, you, you've seen, 
you've seen more of the world from the flight deck than me so far. Um, so hopefully I'll be uh, hopefully I'll, I'll be playing catch. I'll be going to be playing catch up here starting in October <laughs> once I start flying. Um, but you know it's uh, it's uh, it, you know it, that's my favorite thing about flying too. It's like I mean you get to you just get to fly and like my God like you think about it like oh cool look I'm flying over like you know. I like I flew by Mount Rushmore today. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. There's Mount Rushmore, you know. Like, right. you can see things like that. Like, you just normally, like, otherwise that you would have to make a big trip out of. Like, and there it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Or when, being being based in Washington D.C. I mean, every day I got to fly a visual approach where I'd be at 600 feet, less than a mile from the Washington Monument landing at Reagan. Sure. And, like every day, and I mean, like you could like look down, like you could see like the guys walking on the roof of the White House. You could see the National Mall. You could see like. You know Arlington National Cemetery. You could see the Iwo Jima, you know uh, the Iwo Jima flag raising statue, the Marine Corps uh, memorial. Um, you could see all the amazing things that Washington D.C. has to offer. Have you or seen that? You find... Sorry, good. Oh, no, or you go ahead. I'm ranting here. So, so have have you seen that show, Aerial America? I think it's uh, on the Smithsonian Channel. Are you there? Hello? I think we got disconnected. Are you there? Hey, I think I lost you for a second there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We're back. Um, no big deal. But yeah, have, have you seen that show, Aerial America? You know, I've heard of it. I've never, I haven't had a chance to watch it. Is it pretty good? Oh, oh, it's a great show, man. It's a really great show. They, they, they basically do um, kind of, you know, states. I think uh, I think it's states, and they fly through, you know, the the different states, and you get this aerial perspective of of all sorts of things. It's it's fantastic, and of course, it's in you know it's in four K, it's HD, but it really kind of gives you a sense of of uh, kind of low level flying over over all these areas, and of of course, the imagery is just beautiful. So, yeah, it's it, it's fantastic, man. Check it out. Um, I I enjoyed the one. I think it was uh, well, the, well, the California one was pretty amazing but um idaho i think the idaho one was 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 really entertaining flying i'll tell you what flying in california is uh it's the coolest place to fly man yeah you, it's the only place you can go from uh from you know oceanfront beach flying to flying over snow cut co- and snow covered mountains in an hour yeah. it's so it's so cool and then yeah. uh um you ever get a chance uh go to a town called san luis obispo in california it's i know it's it. it's it's, yeah, it's in Central California, right yeah. on the on the water. It uh, it is one of my favorite little towns, man. It's such a cool, charming town, and uh, lots of it's it's kind of like a town that really hasn't been like you know that great. There's like there's an Apple store there. They have a lot of like you know like very trendy like you know high end shops and all that. But like the town and the vibe of the town is like a, like a a city that hasn't been touched in fifty years. It still has its you know identity and culture and uh it's it's such a cool charming town i really i I would live there i really enjoyed uh traveling in northern california getting getting towards towards tahoe uh you you had a lot of these small towns that were built during the gold rush and they still have that really old time you know almost uh western feel to them and and it's uh, again it's you know it's like a time capsule man honestly and and it's it's so you know it's so fantastic to experience Hey everybody, sorry to uh, interrupt the show. Uh, we had some technical difficulties at, at this point, so we had to cut uh, some of it out. But uh, we're nearing the end of the show. Don't worry, this is not an ad. But just wanted to let you guys know, if it seems like there's a cut in there, it's because there was. 
but uh, we've uh, we've since remedied the issue. We shouldn't have it in the future. But anyway, enjoy the rest of the show. See ya. How's it feel? That long? Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. We just been, we just been shooting the shit, man. This has been fun. I know, I know. Look, it's it's a it's a great time. It's you know I've listened to to. Uh, Joe Rogan and people say like, oh man, there's like a time warp in here, you know, but it, it really is like, I, I never really noticed how long, uh, it, it, it actually is, you know, cause it just sounds, it just feels like we're having a conversation, but I, I'm, I'm actually really, uh, really happy that, that the audio seems to be working out, uh, with the phone. I know the last time we, we, we talked it, you know, it didn't turn out as, as well as I had hoped. Um, so I was one, one less podcast, but in any case, man, um, you know, as we, as we wrap it up, uh, do you want to throw any uh, anything out there, social media or anything? Or yeah, you know? two, two, uh, a couple things. First off, uh, Alan Rowe, you're a dirty communist. Um, <laughs> um, Shout out to and, Alan uh, and uh, get a job. And uh, and uh, let's see here. Oh yeah, if uh, for anybody that listens, um, this is not for me. This is for my friends and coworker, former coworkers, and everybody in the airline industry. Um, if you have a minute, reach out to you. If you could, please write to your congressman and your senators uh, at the federal level and ask them to uh, uh, support the uh, Airline Payroll uh, uh, Payroll Protection Act. Uh, the Senate last week passed a clean bill, is a clean, straight bill to fund uh, to fund to keep air, to keep a, about eighty thousand airline employees from losing their jobs on October first. Um, and uh, the Senate passed it. President Trump said he would sign it. Uh, unfortunately, it's being held up in the in the House of Representatives because they they want they they want to attach riders to it for funding for other things. Um, if you could, please write your senator, please write your congressman, and uh, try to help save a couple jobs. There's already 16 million people unemployed, and adding another 80,000 to it is not going to help anybody. It's just going to derail mostly young uh, young new pilots and, and their families. Uh, from having a, a you know a somewhat of a stable life, so if you could please write your senator, ask them to support the Payroll Support Act uh, or CARES Act too, whatever you want to say, call it. Uh, I know a lot of you know a lot of my friends and myself would uh, would greatly appreciate it. And uh, you know um, when 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 you're ready to all come back flying, we'll be waiting for you with a smile on our face, and you know we'll we'll get you to wherever you're ready to go to. Boom! That's a great plug, man. That's a great plug. So anyway, uh, what about social media? Do you want to put that out there? It's fine if you don't. No, it's okay. fine. No, I, I'm, gotcha. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty low key on social media. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Well, man, again, it was, it was great uh, chatting with you. I'm happy that, uh, we got, uh, we got to catch up and, uh, again, everyone, Jamie arena. See ya. Hey, next, Hey, see ya. Next time you have Alan on, uh, let me know. Let's get, let, let, let me get on there and let, let and just put the <laughs> microphone between he and I, it'll, it'll, it'll be, a, it'll be a good one. It'll be a shit show. <laughs> Yeah. All right, man. Good talking to you. Later. See ya. Everybody, thanks again for listening. As always, we appreciate the support from each and every one of you. If you found value in this episode or you just enjoyed the entertainment, feel free to give us a review and a rating. Also, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at shopandchivalry.com where we have links to our episodes, a blog, pictures, and other media, and also a way to get in contact with us. Shoot us an email or a message if you would like to be on the show. Finally, follow us on Facebook at The Shop and Chivalry Podcast, Instagram, Shop and Chivalry, 
and Twitter at Shop and Chivalry. Thanks again, everybody. See ya.